and welcome to the NZX podcast, the perfect place to learn about the New Zealand equity markets, global dairy markets and ESG. Hi listeners, welcome to NZX Dairy Insights podcast. On today's podcast, we talk GDT 306 and the uh, slide of the result. We also talk to Mike McIntyre from Jardin about uh, milk price futures and options and what he's seen in the market from, from his neck of the woods. Right now, I'm joined by Alex Winning, and we're going to discuss GDT 306. Uh, quite the event, Alex. Uh, what are the headlines there? Yeah, thanks, Stu. Um, I guess the first one is the index drop, you know, a massive index drop um, of 3.6%, um, with decreases across all commodities. Um, this is the first time in... Uh, since the start of last year that we've had declines across all commodities. Um, so big, uh, big change. Um, whole milk powder dropped 4.4% uh, at this auction, uh, which is th- uh, 392 US dollars um, per tonne on average, uh, which is just massive. Um, skim milk powder also dropped and we weren't expecting, you know, such a big drop with 4.2% uh, decrease. Um, and I think that was the real the real kicker for this event. Um, and then in, a, in addition, both milk fats dropped um, and cheddar and lactose. So, you know, it was just a crazy, crazy event. A sea um, of red, I think we call that. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I think there was one positive contract with an AMF and that was about it. So, you know... Um, what do you reckon the the reason for that is, especially in that whole milk powder range? Yeah, I think the whole milk powder one's definitely gathering a bit of attention in New Zealand, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, the third auction in a row; it's fallen a bit. Um, but once again, it's the same trend, isn't it? It's the instant whole milk powder being restricted, and more volume of whole milk powder being put on the auction platform. So another two thousand tons of whole milk powder was put on, all regular. Um, and you know, as we know, China's lockdowns are in, in Shanghai and other cities in China really have an impact on their demand. And we saw that with the suction too. And, and I think that helmet powder um, regular dropping was a, a, a issue related to that. But I think the 4.4% drop on the the price index for helmet powder actually hides the, the serious drop in regular helmet powder, which slid 7% for the first two contracts, which is massive. Um, you know, we, we saw instant homework powder prices increase, which helped drag up that average homework powder back to 4.4%. But in terms of um, you know, supply side in New Zealand, the farmers looking at the milk price for the coming season, a 7% slide to their, you know, the price, the, the, the commodity that informs their milk price, regular homework powder, that's a pretty substantial drop. So it's really going to shake the market up here and probably create a bit of uncertainty um, around milk supply or sort of chasing production anyway. So an interesting result this early on in the piece. I mean, we're not quite finished the 22 season, but uh, we're not far away from starting the 22-23 season either. So we're uh, looking at both sides. Now, Alex, I've already touched a bit on that sort of Chinese demand, what we what we gleaned from the auction this morning. You know, what else did you take from the regional buy and sort of a, um, aspect? Yeah, there were a couple surprises in there. Um the first one is that we weren't really expecting North Asia to come in with the lockdowns uh, happening in China. Um, and they took majority of the um, volumes on offer for both milk powders, um, which was a shock. Uh, following on from that, Southeast Asia really didn't turn up when it came to milk powders. Um, and I think that that, uh, that 
demand drop there um, really influenced those prices. There weren't enough people fighting for those contracts. Um, you know, I, I think that's probably the the big uh, regional um, trends that I saw. Uh, I mean, like you touched on earlier, increased volumes on offer didn't help. Um, however, despite the larger volumes on offer for both of the milk fats, um, most of the extra volumes on offer were purchased um, and North Asia significantly increased their butter purchases. So uh, there were, you know, a couple couple shocks in there, but um, nothing big enough to push prices, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. Good underlying demand. I think the other one for me too, that in terms of regional, that was really exciting to see was um, South and Central America, you know, the Latin, Latin, Latin America, sorry, coming through and actually taking massive uh, volumes on this auction, which is good. You know, it really talks to the underlying demand we keep talking about and the, the fundamental um, demand of the market because it's um, good to see. Right, well, that's GDT run through, uh, you know, a 3.6% slide on the index. New Zealand, uh, milk production is pretty quiet. We, you know, we've, we've just punched out PGI for the day and much of the same, and we're, we're very late in lactation. Farmers' mindsets are starting to look at the next season, and, and we talked about that earlier too. Milk prices are starting to affect those um, mindsets too. But thanks, Alex. Thanks for coming on the podcast. As always, always a great chat, and we'll talk again next time following the next GDT and the next podcast. Up next, I've got Mike McIntyre from Jardin director and head of derivatives with Jardin and he talks about what he sees uh, in the New Zealand market as a broker dealing with farmers and also the other side of the market so stay tuned Hi Mike, thanks for joining us, how are you getting on? Pretty good thanks Stu and yourself? Good thank you, right let's jump right into this, let's have a physical market sort of update New Zealand side uh, from your point of view, what are you hearing and seeing on the ground, and you know what are your customers telling you? We're seeing the same thing that I think you know everyone's seen, and it's not just in New Zealand; it's it's globally as well. So a real constraint in supply. Um, obviously, here in New Zealand, in the latter part of the season, we've been impacted by weather, um, but the environmental impact can't be understated as well. So, um, you know, local government, uh, regional councils, um, even central government, they're having a part to play in restricting supply going forward. I said of each of the last couple of seasons, I think we've sort of topped out in New Zealand after 20 years of a stupendous growth. Um, and so I think we're really going to have to do more with what we currently have rather than expecting more milk to come in. And as I said, I, I don't think we're alone. You know, we've seen in Australia some pretty tough climatic conditions over the last few years. Better this year, but still no more milk. Um, a similar deal in South America, although that's a little bit more volatile in terms of production. And then Europe, the same. You know, we're seeing some of these big producers, the likes of France, Germany, the Netherlands, even the UK, start to um, start to top out in terms of the amount that they're contributing to the international markets. So I think in terms of supply, it's not really clear as to any, uh, where any great increase in supply is going to come from. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. And I think... We take a look into to the coming season, real short-term sort of a view. Um, my sort of take is that I don't think we'll see farmers respond to current milk prices in any sort of massive shape or fashion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't know how they could. So in most commodities, the cure for higher prices is higher prices. So, you know, we see an increase in price and whatever commodity is responds with an increase in supply. But 
I'm not sure in New Zealand we're, we're going to be able to meet that. Um, obviously, just in terms of inputs, we're seeing fertiliser costs accelerate. Obviously, interest rates go up. Um, access to feeds another big question. You know, where where are we going to see this excess uh, feed come from, without impacting on on the likes of FEI scores? Uh, so I, I think you know within a couple of percent of where we've been in each of the last few years is probably where we, probably where we top out. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, that feed one's a real issue. I, I think in my mind, I see a lot of farmers sort of changing their systems, probably maybe um, you know, reducing reliance. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly where we're going to see that one land, but I think that might you know cause a bit more of a pullback on milk production than some people are expecting in you know the, the near to short term, and um, that's very interesting. So. Going forward, how have you seen your farmers respond to the new options contracts, uh, the European exercise style, and are they changing or using options better? Do you see that maturity happening in the market? Well, a couple of things. Obviously, the options have been around almost as long as it's the milk future itself. It's just the liquidity. So with an increase in liquidity, those that are writing the options have got a better ability to be able to hedge their positions. So we've got that. Um, the strikes that the farmers tend to have the most interest in are out of the money, just because of the, uh, you know, the extrinsic value, the, the cost of actually being involved in these options. And their strikes are still attractive. So if we had a $7 milk price and we're talking about $5, $50 or $6 strikes, they wouldn't be as attractive. But because we've got a milk price sort of similar for next season at least, sitting around that $10 mark, then an $8.80, $10, uh, sorry, $8.80 or a $9 strike uh, still looks really effective in terms of being able to establish a floor price. You touched on the change in styles from American to European. Um, I, I think where, where that adds in is just incrementally. So the the attraction to the puts is they're, they're simple to understand. So, you know, I liken it to insurance. Um, where we have seen problems in the past is where Farmers have, have used collars and not understood the implications. So they've bought a put and sold a call in order to establish a, a, a point in which they're comfortable um, hedging their position at. But then in the case of where a sold call has been exercised and they put them into a futures position, uh, it's given them something that they don't understand. So by changing the style, as, as you mentioned at the start, through from American to European, then it just makes the whole concept easier to understand. Uh, so we've got the puts, which we've seen a great deal of interest in from buying from farmers, but those with a greater deal of sophistication, as I touched on, are also selling the calls as a means of uh, cheapening the entry price. Definitely. That's a brilliant rundown. Thank you. And touch on a few points there. Are we seeing, uh, you know, sophisticated users using the, the collars? Are we seeing more sort of um, first-time users or, or new users to the market coming in and even just taking a floor uh, put price, a, a put option? Yeah, and no, I think that's it. Just um, you know, sort of highlights where the the market's gone, the f sophistication, the maturity of the market. Uh, so there were some early adopters of the risk management tools, as you would expect. Some of those larger organisations, the corporate farmers that had within their facility um, someone who could take the time to understand the product and manage the product. The futures themselves require some ongoing maintenance, and then as um, the education has improved throughout uh, throughout the life cycle of, of the products, then we've seen more people become involved. And then, you know, again, we're touching on that $10 mark, so it becomes an attractive option to a number of different people that wouldn't have considered the futures at a lower point. 
Um, so I think we're entering a, into a phase now where there's more people wanting to know about the product, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so understanding uh, what's available to them and what can protect the risk that they're looking to address. Definitely. Now let's jump on the other side of the um, the milk price options here and talk about the the, the buy side. Taking the other side of the option, what's the sort of feedback you're hearing from those sort of players in the market, if any? So, so those who are writing the options, is yeah. yeah. So indeed, the people who are writing the options tend to have a more portfolio view. So um, they'll have several different elements to their portfolio. They'll have a physical element where they're buying and selling product on a regular basis. Um, they'll have futures positions, and not just on the NZX. They'll be in other exchanges. So they'll have exposure to US product or European product or through um, over-the-counter contracts, they might have exposure to Australian or South American product even. And so the portfolio approach to that, uh, there's obviously a piece in there where writing options to enhance yield makes sense to them. So again, as I said, we're, we're really lucky in the fact that there's been increased maturity in the market, there's increased liquidity. And so those participants who are in there writing the options have now got the ability to do so and hedge their position on an ongoing basis. So in summation, we could we could probably glean that there's definitely more there to go. If more farmers come to the market, there's definitely more liquidity to happen. Both sides are pretty keen to play, right? I think so. You know, as the market continues to mature, we'll see people with different motivations doing different things in the market. And so you know, something that might not have worked a season or two ago now does. And um, as we've got people with greater understanding of ways of using these tools, you know, they're looking for the other side of the trade. So, you know, we were surprised with the uptake of the puts when they first came along, but they've, they've been well received and there's a greater understanding. And we've got, you know, a lot of interest coming to us trying to get a better feel for how these products work, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, awesome. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna just take it one step um, back for a, and just real simple explanation for our farmer listeners, please. If they were coming to the market to to use these options, can we run through a real simple? What's the process? What do they need to do to come to Jardin and say, "I want to trade options. I want to protect my downside." What's what's the simple thing they need to do? Well, firstly, have the conversation with us so we get an understand. Ensure they have an understanding of what they're getting themselves into. So obviously, um, you know, the rural community and financial markets who haven't have had a checkered history in the past. So with an exchange traded product, at least we know that the farmers themselves can get a price at the end of each day. So that's great. So we point them in that direction, how the market works. Then it's a case of, of establishing an account. So getting the information through to us, which is, again, relatively straightforward. And then it's just some further education about how the puts might work. Awesome. Thank you for that. Right, let's jump into some back into the world, you know, a bigger frame. We've, we've gone down options, down the rabbit hole. Let's look forward. What do you, you know, let's do a little bit of stargazing because I think, you know, part of my role is, is, is looking forward and trying to understand. And I think, you know, you've probably got a, a rather good insight as well. Where do you see the next uh, season coming, you know, in terms of prices? Where do you, where do you see support in terms of um, are we going to see China's demand carry on? We've seen a few shocks at the last few GDT auctions. Where, where's your sort of head, you know, where do you think we're heading? Well, first of all, uh, two things drive market prices, and that's fundamentals and sentiment. So I think fundamentals remain strong. So, you know, we're getting to the end of the season with not much in the way of supply. And even if China wasn't to be as present as what they have been historically, I think there's enough enough other players in the market to step up and take uh, 
take the product at the end of the season. So I think we're fine there through to the start of the new season. But then there's sentiment, you know, as you touched on that um, their, their participation levels well down on the last auction, um, you know, below a third, which is the lowest they've been in, in several years, five or six years. And so we really need, given they take 51% of the Hommel powder and a significant portion of the other products, for them to turn up at the auctions. Um, if they don't, then I think, you know, looking for someone to participate at those price levels for those sort of volumes will be difficult to find. Um, not impossible, but, um, you know, it may require an adjustment in the prices that, to what we're currently seeing. Definitely. No, I couldn't agree more, to be honest. Mike, have you got any questions from your end for, for NZX? I guess one that sort of stands out for me is that we've been on the SGX now for four, five months. You know, we're seeing a lot of interest locally from farmers. Um, you know, what's the sense of, of progress we've made since the move? And, you know, are there any sort of trends or, or movements that you've picked up on in the time that we've been on this new exchange? Great question, Mike. One of the key drivers for the partnership was increasing market access, and we're already seeing great progress here. We now have 13 clearing members and brokers providing market access to clients, which is helping with volumes. Screen liquidity is a key driver for drivers markets reaching maturity, and we're making great progress in this regard, with over 60% of volume traded on screen since launch. Open interest, which is a measure of clients' positions that are open, reached a new record in April of 95,000 contracts. Volumes have also been strong. In Q1, we were 8% up on Q1 2021. Another thing to note is that as part of the move to SGX, we changed the exercise style of the New Zealand milk price options, and this change seems to have been very well received, as the monthly volume record was broken recently with 1,600 lots traded. I think one thing that you know we're certainly guilty of in the broking side of things, and maybe you guys are picking up on it as well, is we talk about 1,600 lots of the options and, you know, that sounds like a lot, certainly in comparison to what we've done previously. But to a farmer, it doesn't really mean anything. So if we talk about, like, 10 million solids, then it starts becoming meaningful in terms of, you know, what it means, um, you know, in terms of the numbers that they look at or, or deal in. So, you know, in the media, I know they talk about lots as well, but I, I think there's probably some education that needs to be put through in terms of people being aware of, of what they can get away. So... You know, yeah. 10 million dollars, you know, that's significant in terms of, of where we are and even an open interest in the in the futures. Mm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And that's that's exactly right. 600 lots, you know, 10 million in solids in a, in a month. And it's quite incredible to see that much hedge. And we, we, we always, all we have to do too in terms of how much the take-up has changed is that September 23 contract uh, at the time of this recording, uh, 8,066 sorry, 8,668 lots of open interest sitting there. So, you know, we talk about what what's one lot, 6,000 kilograms of milk solids, and uh, we run it through the calculator, and, you know, we're looking at 52 million solids sitting on the exchange already. So that's a lot of milk, uh, you know, already hedged against, and we've, that's one contract of the three listed. So I agree, Mike, there's a, a lot there, and, and when we, you start doing the comparison uh, or, you know, converting from lots to, to milk solids, it's a it's a big volume and it's growing rapidly, and that's before the season's ever started, right? So exactly right. We're we're at least what are we eighteen nineteen months from settlement, so it's a, a long way to go and and um, a lot more to happen. And and to be honest, if that second contract tracks the same way as the you know as we usually see as it becomes the first contract in um, a few months' time, 
I would I would almost expect that open interest to at least double. So we're we're looking at you know potentially 104 million solids on that um, listed on the exchange, which is incredible. So great to see. Hey, Stu, one one thing that I think would be interesting, and I know I've seen it before in the past, is the comparison between um, the New Zealand derivative market and the CME at the same time. So, um, like, if you take a look at the Class 3 or even compare the Class 3 and Class 4 combined, Mm -hmm. how long they took to become a multiple of the physical milk. Mm -hmm. And so... I remember when I was at Fonterra, we used to track it and take a look at it, and I've seen Rice have put out some stuff in the past. And I think now the US, or certainly a few years ago when there was a bit more activity on the US market, that the US market was trading derivative volumes in excess of the physical milk. And when we first started off with the derivatives, that they were tracking a similar sort of um, tangent to what the US market was. So it'll be interesting to see where we are now versus where we were then and um, how far away we are or when we could expect to see the next sort of step change. Because I, I think this year we do see a step change, and I think aided in part by obviously having a $10 milk price or there or thereabouts. Um, but also just where we've got to the stage now where um, it's not a case of just producing homework powder, putting on a boat and sending it to China. So people are looking to do more with the limited product they have. And as a result, you know, willing to buy milk to offset their exposure to the milk price in order to create products of a higher value. Mm, no, yeah, couldn't agree more. I think that maturity, you know, it's it's not going to stop in the short term. You know, I think the, the rapid changes we've seen, obviously accelerated by uncertainty at the moment. But um, like you say, the market's changing so quickly from season to season. I I I, I can't see it slowing down either, but... Um, I, I don't think that... Like, well, I think the uncertainty continues because, um, you know, every season we go into... Every time of the year we go into a new season, you know, there's a lot of anticipation as to what will happen with the milk price. And despite the fact that Fonterra delivers the range, the immediate focus just goes to the midpoint. So they can say it's a dollar fifty spread, but everyone just goes 75 cents in, and that's where they see the milk price being. Hmm. So, you know, it's a difficult for one for them because... So if they were to guide 950, you know, as you said, a lot of uncertainty, but that's just dairy now. Dairy's the same as FX. There's a lot of uncertainty there. You know, commodities are hard to predict, and there's so many moving parts. Um, you know, when wars first broke out in Ukraine, you know, people were saying to me, what's the impact going to be on dairy prices? And it takes you a little while to unpick and see what the biggest factor is in terms of what could push prices one way or the other. And you know, it turns out it's going to be fertilizer prices or it's going to be wheat prices and the impact on global grains. You know, does it become prohibitively expensive to produce dairy in China as a result? And so we see more demand for imports or does it mean that the states produces less dairy and so, you know, opens up some of the markets that they previously exported to? Or does it mean that people, it just becomes so unaffordable that people stop buying dairy? So it's for me, it's it's really hard when someone says, you know, what are we looking at in terms of for the season ahead in terms of a price and, and where do you see things? Short term, we've got a pretty good idea. Like, we can obviously reflect what happened in the last GDT. Um, but you're only a GDT away from something completely different happening. So, you know, for, for us, I think, um, yep, the uncertainty will continue. And, um, you know, it's, we're just thankful we've got these tools in place now where we can do something about it if need be. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's a, a brilliant rundown, I think, um, and a great place to end. Thank you very much. I couldn't have put it better myself, so I won't try and add any more. But once again, thank you, Mike. Great chat.
Thanks for listening to the NZX podcast. Tune in to further episodes by subscribing to our channel and let us know what you want to know more about by emailing us at podcast at nzx.com. We would love to hear from you. Until then, catch you next time. The information provided in this podcast is guidance only and intended for general information purposes. It does not constitute investment advice. NZX Limited disclaims all liability for any error, inaccuracy or omission or for any loss suffered through relying on this podcast. Proprietary rights of the podcast are owned or licensed by NZX and no part of this information may be redistributed or reproduced in any forms or by any means without the written consent of NZX.